ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. ECO Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. And I'm Juliana Daly. A long-delayed recycling project in Monroe County has entered another stage. Consultants are now on the clock to complete a feasibility study for a mixed waste processing facility, also known as MRF, pronounced MRF. The MRF project has been studied and debated for more than seven years. The County Solid Waste Management District has now contracted with Florida firm Kessler Consulting for the new study. The district's director, Tom McGlasson, Jr., told the district's Citizens Advisory Committee last week that Kessler has eight months to complete it. Their first step in, in doing this beyond the, that, the data gathering and research is to get people up here and begin the waste characterization study uh, that was called for um, in, in the RFP. So they're uh, game planning and, and scheduling people to get that done. Um, have uh, a conference call scheduled with them uh, early next week and hopefully would have more information on schedules and, and what their plan is. The 30-day waste characterization study is needed to determine how much of the county's waste is trash and how much is recyclable materials. Kessler Consulting is also assisting the City of Bloomington in its switch to an automated sanitation service. When we were reviewing the RFPs and stuff, I was made aware that the, the city had entered into that agreement with them, um, but that did not... You know, that, that was not a factor that we considered when we reviewed RRPs and made a recommendation for award. But, but given that we're in that situation and that uh, you know, one of the caveats of the waste characterization study is that the city's waste stream is to be looked at separately um, you know, from, from the other waste streams that are out there, I, I would hope that there's some benefit to having them involved with both entities. In his update to the Citizens Advisory Committee, McGlasson also said he is preparing the district's 2018 budget. The proposed budget will be presented to the Solid Waste District Board in June. Committee member John Arnold asked McGlasson if he spotted any trends. Trending is, is for budgeting purposes, it's hard to see because our budget has we've been tied up with you know budgeting for a MRF that never came to existence mm -hmm. uh, this year our budget includes two roll-off trucks and drivers for those trucks that we do not have you know and what, all, what that means for us you know operationally as we go through the year is you know when those things those expenses don't occur that money winds up getting transferred into other lines to cover the expenses that do happen because we did not have those trucks or you know, we weren't processing our own material. We had to pay somebody else uh, to handle those materials. Um, 
as far as uh, you know, trying to predict what those will be, you know, we, we, we are we do have you know accurate data on tonnages and stuff for waste and recycling, and those numbers actually have have been fairly steady and consistent okay. for us over the years, and we're not seeing any significant increase or decreasing trend, uh, you know, on those. So uh, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to project what those costs will be. McGlasson said he didn't expect any new fees to be added in the coming budget cycle. On May 18th, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb signed House Bill 1344, providing relief to the residents of Calumet neighborhood of East Chicago, who are suffering the consequences of lead and arsenic contamination in the neighborhood. The neighborhood was built on the USS Lead Superfund site. The legislation mandates that the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, or IDEM, help with the cleanup of the site and test water and soil throughout the city. It also orders the Indiana Housing and Community Development Authority to work with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development to relocate affected residents. Further, the new legislation requires IDEM to do more comprehensive testing of the city's water. As initially introduced to the House, the bill expanded testing throughout the city and provided help to the city's school system. Those features didn't make it into the final version of the bill. In more Indiana news, bees in the region are facing an uphill battle against widely used pesticides. During the corn planting season, nearly every foraging honeybee in the state of Indiana will encounter a class of pesticides called neonicotinoids. Corn seeds are treated with neonicotinoids to reduce pest infestations, but aside from harming animals that aren't pests, like bees and humans, this seed treatment produces no improvement in crop yield, according to a Purdue University study. The United States is losing about one-third of its honeybee hives each year, a significant problem since the bees pollinate many crops used to feed people and livestock. Neonicotinoids, which are highly toxic to honeybees, are being scrutinized as a possible contributor to the population losses. Neonicotinoids are now banned in Europe because of their negative impact on honeybees. WFHB checked with the Purdue Extension earlier this year, and there was no ban on neonicotinoids in Indiana. There does not appear to have been any examination of the use of the pesticides by the state of Indiana. Christian Krupke, a professor of entomology at Purdue University, showed in 2012 that exhausted insecticides actually collected onto flowers that border agricultural fields and were also found in beehives near those fields. Bees in those hives showed physical signs of insecticide poisoning, and dead bees tested positive for the neonicotinoids used as seed treatments for corn and soybeans. Now Krupke, along with collaborators Jeff Holland at Purdue, Elizabeth Long at Ohio State University, and Bryant Eitzer with Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, have measured the drift of those neonicotinoids from fields and found that the insecticides can settle on flowers up to 100 meters from the edge of the planted fields, the farthest distance examined in the study. Their findings are published in the Journal of Applied Ecology. Pesticides are only part of the problem that insects face from industrial agriculture. Clearing habitat to make space for industrial agriculture continues to affect many insects, including the monarch butterfly. 
The number of monarch butterflies wintering in Mexico dropped by 27% this year, revising last year's, reversing last year's recovery from historically low numbers. The experts say the decline could be due to late winter storms that blew down more than 100 acres of forests that serve as winter habitat for migrating monarch butterflies in central Mexico. The monarchs depend on finding relatively well-preserved forests where millions of the orange and black butterflies hang in clumps from the boughs. The trees and the clumping help protect the butterflies from cold rains and steep drops in temperature. This year, however, the butterflies covered only 7.2 acres as compared to last year's 10 acres. This compares with a record low of 1.7 acres in 2013. Twenty years ago, the average area covered was 44 acres. The monarch's winter habitat continues to be affected by increased logging in central Mexico, where U.S. demand for avocados have led to avocado farms replacing the forests. In more U.S.-Mexico news, a new study by the Center for Biological Diversity has found that if Trump's U.S.-Mexico border wall is constructed, it will threaten 93 endangered species including jaguars, ocelots, and Mexican gray wolves. The study also noted that 25 threatened or endangered species have designated critical habitat along the border, including over 2 million acres within 50 miles of the border. According to the center, the wall could drive species to extinction in the United States. The study identified all threatened, endangered, and candidate species, those being considered for protection, that have ranges near or crossing the border. They include 57 endangered species, 24 threatened species, 10 species being considered for protection, and two species of concern, golden and bald eagles. Construction of the 1,200-mile wall, along with related infrastructure and enforcement, will cut off migration corridors, reducing genetic diversity, destroying habitat, and adding vehicles, noise, and lights to massive stretches of wild borderlands. Trump has also launched a review of over two dozen national monuments. Of the 27 monuments slotted for review, only the Bears Ears National Monument in Utah was targeted with an expedited review process. The Interior Department is taking public comments on Bears Ears, but has given the public just 15 days to comment on the proposal. Bears Ears is the first ever monument created in partnership with Native Americans, and it was designed to give the tribes who have called the spectacular Red Rock landscape home for millennia a long overdue voice in its management. Rescinding the National Monument status for Bears Ears threatens its 1.35 million acres of wildlands and cultural sites with oil and gas drilling, uranium and coal mining, tar sands extraction, and other industrial dangers. When Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke arrived at Bears Ears National Monument for a press conference on May 8, 60 to 70 monument supporters were waiting to greet him. Many wore Protect Bears Ears t-shirts and carried signs which said, Utah stands with Bears Ears and honor tribes, honor Bears Ears. Several tribal leaders were milling around the parking lot hoping to have a word with him. Although Zinke has said he intends to make sure the tribes have a voice, only two tribal members were able to meet with him. 
The rest of the Secretary's tour included spending considerable time with prominent monument opponents, such as Utah Governor Gary Herbert. The overall conclusion of the defenders of Bears Ears was that their voice was not heard. The Interior Department is accepting public, co public comment on Bears Ears until just May 27th, and they'll be paying particular attention to the volume of comments that come from both sides. Years of public comment, protest, and civil disobedience that has led to over 650 arrests finally paid off in the Finger Lakes region of New York State. Crestwood Midstream Partners just announced it was canceling its plan to store fragment natural gas in abandoned underground salt mines around Seneca Lake, the drinking water source for 100,000 people in upstate New York. In 2014, the project obtained federal approval. That same year, a grassroots coalition called We Are Seneca Lake began trying to stop it. Numerous opposition campaigns, from the hundreds of arrests to lobbying by local businesses, contributed to the project, project's cancellation. The fight, however, isn't over. Crestwood still plans to use the salt mines to store as much as 88 million gallons of propane. Another local opposition group, Gas Free Seneca, recently said it will attempt to convince the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to rescind its approval of this part of the project. Pebble Limited Partnership has received permission from the EPA to reapply for a permit to construct a huge copper and gold mine in the Bristol Bay area of southwest Alaska, which is home to about half the world's sockeye salmon. In doing so, the EPA reversed a decision on the mine made during the Obama on the on the mine made during the Obama administration. Native Americans and environmental organizations from the Bristol Bay region say that the new agreement between the EPA and the Pebble Company shows that the environmental protections they'd been looking for might never materialize. During the Obama administration, local organizations requested that the EPA investigate this project. The result was years of reviews, scientific evaluations, and public comments. The process ended with the determination that the mine would threaten the long-term health of the ecosystem and some industries, including commercial fishing <clears throat> and ecotourism. The Bristol Bay Native Corporation observed that the agreement calls into question the EPA's commitment to the Clean Water Act. On May 9th, a tunnel at the Hanford nuclear site in Washington State collapsed on top of rail cars stored there containing mixed radioactive waste. The tunnel collapse might have been caused by soil subsistence from vibrations at nearby roadworks. The local watchdog group Hanford Challenge described the situation as a crisis. The tunnel is located next to the plutonium-uranium extraction facility and contains substances classified as dangerous waste. The collapse prompted an initial evacuation of workers in the area that then spread to a take-cover order for the entire site. The already embattled Hanford site was originally part of the Manhattan Project and a major supplier of military plutonium. It houses 177 storage tanks containing liquid radioactive sludge. Some of the tanks have been leaking radioactive effluent that could eventually threaten the Columbia River. Cleanup at the site didn't begin until 1989. And those are some of the headlines for WFHB and Eco Report. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. 
We love to hear from you. Contact us if you have any thoughts about stories we've aired or if you have future story ideas. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. In today's Eco Report feature, correspondent Norm Holy speaks with the manager of the Lake Lemon Conservancy, Adam Casey. In this next clip, Casey begins by discussing the sedimentation issues at Lake Lemon. The primary problem that reservoirs face is sedimentation. Uh, they tend to have large watersheds, and there were areas that were previously streams, um, very hilly terrain. So they all, all kind of face the sedimentation. Most of the reservoirs around this part of the state were built in the mid-1900s, and they're all kind of coming to this critical age now where the sediment's becoming such a large problem, they're losing capacity, recreation potential, and um, really just overall degradation. What we can do from the lake side as far as management, we'll be looking at a couple different sediment management options including um, large-scale dredging on the east end, um, utilizing hydraulic dredging, creating engineered deltas to try and capture the sediment in a localized area so we can focus our efforts on a localized area instead of uh, the entire east end of the lake. One of the other options is kind of a hybrid approach where we use some of our sediment material to create a berm system and essentially create a wetland area on the eastern end of the lake, and we would be using type of water diversion uh, mechanisms to, to direct the water and the sediment into these locations so it falls out and into one location where we can manage it. That's the, that's the biggest problem is once it hits the lake now, it just spreads out into that entire bay and it becomes very difficult to, to grasp. I know one of the aspects of your program is to prevent the sediment from coming into the lake. What are you planning to do on that? We've actually invited out the Sycamore Land Trust um, to come to the meeting tomorrow, and we really need to start partnering up with some of the entities in the watershed. Um, they own a lot of the land just east of the reservoir. Um, so creating these partnerships and, and looking for projects we can do together will be a huge impact. Another thing I believe that we need to do is to focus some efforts or some money to do a really comprehensive stream bank survey. Um, seems like a lot of the erosion happens in the lower portions of Bean Blossom Creek prior to entering into the lake. Um, again, this is due to the large watershed and really flashy, flashy flows that we have. So if we can do that and kind of find some areas that we think we can go in and stabilize the stream bank, and have a, have a large impact, um, I think that'll be the, the best choices and the, one of the next steps that we need to take. And what are you planning to do in terms of, uh, of removal of some of the sediment? Uh, one of the first ways that we're going to be um, kind of changing our focus is really need to look into the methodology that we use rather than using the mechanical dredging, which is great for digging access channels, and straight shots, we really need to start looking into the hydraulic dredging technology, which would allow us to move uh, much higher volumes over a larger area. Um, this is one of the challenges that we face also, is what we're going to do with the sediment. We currently have two Rule 5 permitted disposal sites where we dump the sediment out now, 
Um, but if we start moving large amounts of sediment, such as that's possible with hydraulic, we're going to run into these issues of what do we what do we do with the sediment? We're very hilly out here. There's not a whole lot of farm fields. Um, one of the things that we've talked about kind of brief, briefly is maybe we can use some of the sediment that we remove from the lake and kind of put it back in, just shift it um, so we can use it to create our berms and our managed delta. Now, I, I know over Yellowwood Lake, uh, they when they dredged that, they actually built a little mountain, uh, if you will, and use it for winter sports. So it's skiing and sledding area. Would that be a possibility out there at Lake Lemon? Yeah, I mean, that, that really could be a possibility. Um, currently, our disposal sites now are not accessible um, to the general public. Um, but in the past, one of the things that was looked at is utilizing Little Africa, which is a nature preserve and bird viewing site, and um, maybe expanding that westward. Um, use the sediment to expand the land mass there, create hiking trails, birding stands, and uh, potentially a large viewing mound. Now, is there any potential use of, of the sediment uh, in constructing the I-69 corridor? We have actually looked at that prior uh, when the first the project was announced, and we had some of the engineers come out and test the soil, and the problem that we ran into was it did not have a high enough degree of compactability, um, so the clay content was so low they couldn't couldn't reach the compaction standards. Now, we do have some home residents around the lake um, that have been using it for, for fill and for gardens, and last year um, when FEMA redid the flood zone map, we actually had a uh, home that was being built. They came and took over 100 triaxles of dirt and raised the lot out of the floodplain. Um, I think they raised up about eight feet. So creative solutions like that help us out, and we are, if anybody needs dirt um, for any type of projects, we give it away for free. We're not trying to make any money off it. We're just trying to, to find a home for it so we can prolong the life of our disposal sites. Let's talk about financing. How, how are we going to pay for this? We do have a master planning committee right now, and on that committee is a, is a finance committee, and it's going to have to be a, a hybrid approach because any of these large projects do cost quite a bit of money. So we do have our, the current, current dredging money that we have, and if we shift the focus um, to these big projects, we have a, a decent amount there. We're going to have to be looking for, for grants, federal grants, and um, ultimately, I mean, it may come to, nobody, nobody likes to hear the words, but it may come into a little bit of a fee increase for the Conservancy District taxes. Uh, none of this will be done in a very brash, quick decision. It'll all be kind of uh, thought out and planned for in the long distance, and we'll, we'll propose all this to the public before any of the any of the decisions are made. Now, since the city owns the lake, are the, are they willing partners in in uh, the financial aspect? We have spoken with them before. Um, don't want to say too much. The, the city has a lot of stuff they're dealing with currently, such as an aging infrastructure for their, their water system throughout the, out the city. And I think that's their primary focus now. So maybe in the future, I mean, we are, we are continuing talks and uh, communication with them. I'd like to thank Adam Casey. He is the manager of the Lake Lemon 
Conservancy. And good luck at your meeting tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Eco Report is currently seeking volunteer journalists to contribute short weekly headlines about ecological issues from indigenous resistance to infrastructure projects to climate change and biological diversity. Commitment is light and you can set your own schedule. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. And now it's time for our weekly calendar of, of, of events. Enjoy a stomp in the creek on Saturday, May 27th at Brown County State Park from 2 to 2.45 p.m. What could be better than splashing in a small stream looking for various frogs, salamanders, and water bugs? Meet Ella at Lake Strawl for this fun and fascinating creek stomp. Dress appropriately. Things could get a little messy. Volunteer in the American Hiking Society's 24th anniversary of National Trail Days to help maintain the trails at Griffey Lake on Saturday, June 3rd from 9 a.m. to noon. Bring sturdy shoes, gloves, and a water bottle. Lunch will be provided. Take some time to learn more about eagles at Monroe Lake Paintown State Recreation Area on Saturday, May 27th from 9.30 to 11 a.m. Drop by to learn a few facts about Monroe Lake's best-known bird, the bald eagle. Kids can make an eagle craft and you can pick up a guide to the best spots to see eagles at the lake. Take a wildlife hike at Brown County State Park on Tuesday, May 30th from 3 to 4 p.m. Meet Sheena in the Lake Ogle parking lot and head out around the lake looking for traces and signs of wildlife. Who knows what you might find on this exciting and breathtaking hike. Learn about the geologic history of Indiana's limestone on a guided tour of the State House Quarry at McCormick's Creek State Park with Dr. Todd Thompson, the state geologist and director of the Indiana Geological Society, on Saturday, June 3rd from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Meet at the CCC Recreation Building. Reservations are required. Email the Indiana Geological Survey to register at P-R-O-O-T at indiana.edu. That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, and Sarah Vaughn. Norm Holy produced the feature. Aaron Comforty edited the script. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Our executive producer and engineer is Joe Crawford. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown on ecological news and resistance. Until then, Eco Report encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the Eco Report. 
a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. Thank you.